Good morning. No mai haere mai. Welcome to the street again, especially if you're visiting. I must say, let me, let me start by saying it's actually a relief for me to be here at the 11am service. It's a relief. Because on Friday night, I had a, a Friday, Friday night, maybe Friday morning, I had a nightmare. I had a nightmare. I think it was in that moment right between when I hit the snooze button after the alarm went off and it came on again 10 minutes later. And the nightmare was that I'd got up in church and I'd spoken, out, spoken at the 9am service and then I'd gone off to do something. And then suddenly I saw the clock wherever I was and it was 12.25. I was like, no! Oh no! But I'm here. <laughs> so I'm relieved. <laughs> It's like turning up at school in your pajamas or something, isn't it? Yeah. So this is what goes through a preacher's mind occasionally. Hey, I wanted to start this morning with a little anecdote. As some of you may be aware, I'm a keen cyclist. Pick a major landmark. I'm up for riding around it. Next weekend will be the Topol Cycle Challenge. I'll get around the lake on my bike. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was an event called K2, which is around the Coromandel. In the new year, I might ride around Mount Taranaki, you know, pick a big thing I'm up for going around it and um, I've been doing this for a few years now I like riding my bike so much I'll sometimes take my bike on holiday with me so I've become quite practiced at putting the bike carrier on the back of the car and strapping the bike to the bike carrier and one Christmas we were visiting my wife's parents and my father-in-law is a very conscientious man and he saw the bike on the back of the car on the bike carrier and he said Aiden you're missing one of those supplementary number plates. You're supposed to have an, a supplementary number plate because your bike is obscuring the actual number plate on your car, so that's supposed to be there. And I said, oh, okay, thank you for pointing that out to me. And, uh, and he said, look, I, I, don't worry, I, I know a sign writer, he made one for me, I'll get him to make one for you, so I gave him my number plate and I went back home, and then in the mail turned up this, this number plate. Here it is, actually, yeah? So I thought, oh, okay. That's pretty good. Yep, I'm, I'm happy with that. And uh, so I was all sorted. And uh, anyway, a couple of years later, I was coming back from the Topol Cycle Challenge. And we were driving down, you know, on a weekend, and it uh, must have been just south of Wanganui, I think. And uh, I saw these flashing lights in my rear vision mirror. And uh, sure enough, it was a police officer, and he pulled us over. And uh, I wound down the, the uh, driver's side window because I was driving. I was the driver's side, and that's the window that works. And, and he's, he said, excuse me, sir, did you know that you have a non-compliant supplementary number plate? <laughs> it's a true story. It's a true story. And, uh, and I said, really? I was genuinely surprised. And he said, uh, yes, yes, you do. And I thought, oh, I want to be my best to be compliant in this moment. And so I said, would you mind showing me? And he said, of course. And so I got out of the car and he took me around to the back and he showed me the number plate and explained in quite some detail the technical specifications that this supplementary number plate was required to meet and that this, this in fact, did not meet it and uh, how to get a, a new one. And he, said, he told me all this and he said, you can't just make your own. And I wanted to say, well, I didn't. It was my father-in-law. But, but I actually said, oh, really? Uh, can you give me some more information about that? And he said, yes, of course. And he gave me the information, and thankfully I got away without a ticket. 
Now, the point of the story is this. The law is powerful. The law is powerful. It makes you, this was a minor infraction, a minor transgression, right? I thought so. But I was on my toes in a heartbeat. I was a bit worried. And today I want us to explore what was the purpose and what was the power of the law of Moses that was given to the Jewish people. So we're traveling through the book of Hebrews, and it is one of my favorite books of the Bible because it unfolds and it unpacks the deeper meaning of many of the things in the Old Testament. That's why the series is called Deep and Meaningful. Slightly tongue-in-cheek, but it does go to the, the absolute purpose of the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to have a look at the law today. Now, if you were a Jewish person, the law was kind of like a number plate. It was an identifier because it said, we know we have been given a way to live that is from God. His revealed will is there for us in the law. And it prescribed lots of different things about the way that they were to live. And one of the institutions that the law established was a priesthood. A priesthood, the same law that said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, and do not murder, and do not commit adultery, said, establish a priesthood. Establish a priesthood to help mediate the relationship between a sinful people and a holy God. And so the priests were critical in Jewish society. They had to offer all sorts of sacrifices. If you're a normal person in Jewish society, if you had sinned, you could bring an animal to be sacrificed at the temple, and there was all sorts of rules around what kind of animal and when and how, and the priest would sacrifice this animal for you. And there was a lot of blood. Sacrifices were happening day after day after day, and there was a lot of death. And this whole system was showing us that there's a terrible price to be paid for sin. A terrible price to be paid. And so the priests played this really important role. And in fact, once a year, the priest also had to go into the Holy of Holies. That was a place within the tabernacle, the tent where God would meet with Israel. There was a holy place, and then there was a most holy place. And God actually said to Moses to tell Aaron, the first high priest, tell him, you're not to go in there whenever you want. You can only go in there once a year, and then it's to make a a sacrifice or an offering on behalf of the people to atone for the sin of the whole nation. And Aaron would have to go and kill uh, a bull, firstly, to atone, to pay a price for his own sin and the sin of his family, and he would have to sprinkle some of the blood on the atonement cover, which was on the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place. And then he would have to go and do the same thing with a goat on behalf of all of Israel. He would take the blood and sprinkle it on that cover. And you know, he couldn't come too close even then. God said, take this, there's this golden censer, which is like this bowl, and put some hot coals in it and go into that place and put some very fine incense on it and let that burn up and create smokes when you put the blood on the atonement cover because you cannot see God. You cannot see me. Even then, it was highly regulated. And all of those practices were good. The law is good. The law revealed the will of God, revealed his character. And the priesthood was a good thing because it showed that God wanted to have a relationship with people through this mediated process. 
And yet, while those things were good, both the priesthood and the law were lacking. They had a weakness. There was only so much they could do because neither of them could permanently reconcile a person or a nation to God. Those sacrifices had to be offered day after day after day and year after year. The job was never done. And so year after year, the system also spoke of the tremendous burden of sin and death and its tremendous cost. And God said, you know what, I have something else planned. You are going to need something better. And the writer of Hebrews has just started telling us about what was lacking in the priesthood in particular. He has said, you know what, the priests are actually lacking in that they they are to be your representative before God. But you know what, they themselves need a representative because they are sinful too. So how can they mediate on behalf of a person and God? They have to make a sacrifice for themselves. You need a better mediator. You need a better priest. He said, if only we, need, we had a priest who was holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And then we pick this up in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. I love how the writer starts by saying, the point of what we're saying is this. So we can't miss it. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. And of course, he is speaking of Jesus Christ, of God himself, who became a man and thus became a perfect mediator because he was fully God and fully man. He could stand in the gap for us. And he was without sin. He was blameless. He didn't need a sacrifice on his own behalf and so he became that perfect priest that we needed and now building on this point the writer of Hebrews we're going to bookend our passage chapter 9 verse 15 says this Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant so Christ was a better and new high priest, and he instituted a better and new covenant, a new way of relating to God. And Jenny shared wonderfully a few weeks ago what a covenant is, or what the law, covenant of the law in particular was like. She said it was like a marriage between God and his people. Isn't that a beautiful picture? A marriage is a covenant. It was a very intimate relationship. And the covenant of the law was like a marriage, but it was also like a contract between two parties where basically God said here is the law here's the way to live this is what is good here's what to do here's what not to do and he said if you follow that law I will bless you and you will live if you do not follow that law I will curse you and you will die and from a spiritual perspective he wasn't just speaking of physical life and death he was speaking of spiritual life and death he was talking about eternal life if you're in a relationship with me the living God you will have eternal life but if you reject me you will suffer eternal death and punishment in a place called hell after you physically die so there was a serious gravity 
to this law. Moses put it this way. After explaining the law to all the people, he said, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you to all the people that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, choose life. Choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. That was the old covenant. That was how it worked. Two parts. Now, as we know, Christ has come as the mediator of a new covenant, but he didn't just scrap the old one. He didn't just scrap it. He didn't dismiss it out of hand. In fact, one of the things he did was up the stakes. So he said, you know what? It's not good enough, for example, to just follow the command that says do not commit adultery, which means don't cheat on your husband or your wife. He said it's not good enough just to observe that. He says if you even think, men, if you even lust after a woman in your heart, that's as good as committing adultery. You've broken the law. Or if you are angry with someone and you are vicious towards them and you call them a horrible name, he said you're in danger of damnation. See, Christ set the bar sky high. He validated the law. He said, it is good. He affirmed it. And this is an important point. Jesus said, heaven and earth may pass away, but not a jot or a tittle will disappear from the law until it has been fulfilled. And I, I like that. I'm a, an English student. I love language. And a jot, he's referring to the Aramaic language there. A jot, if you and I saw it in that script, in that language, it would look like a comma. Just a tiny little thing. And a tittle was probably more like a punctuation mark. They're just the finest things. And so Christ was saying, unless you uphold the law, you, you must do. To the nth degree, the teeniest, tiniest part, none of it is void. It all matters. And you might say, well, who can keep that standard? And the answer is no one. None of us, no human being can do that. It's in our nature to sin, right? So God said, I'm going to replace the old covenant with something better. I'm going to uphold both sides of the bargain. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become a man, to take on flesh, and to fulfill the law, to live a perfect, unblemished life. And more than that, to pay the price of our every transgression of that law, our every teeny tiny little bit of wrong, Christ came to pay for. He upheld the law. He fulfilled the old covenant. How did he do that? Ultimately, through his death on the cross was where all of that came together. And so in the meal that we refer to as the Last Supper and that we remember in communion, Jesus took a cup and he said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you, which is poured out for you. You see, the blood of bulls and goats under that old sacrificial system was important. It was symbolic. It recognized the terrible price of sin is death. That is why we die. But Christ has come as the minister of a new covenant, a better covenant, a better relationship, a better deal. 
by his own blood he obtained eternal redemption it wasn't a temporary deal it's not something that Christ has to do again and again and again once and for all and for all time he fulfilled the law and so the writer of Hebrews tells us by calling this covenant that new covenant that Christ established by calling it new he has made the first covenant obsolete and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear Now, you cannot imagine how radical that would have been for a Jewish person to hear. Because like we've said, the Mosaic law defined them as a nation. It was God's revelation to them. And it told them how to live. It told them how to do so much. That would have been very confronting to say that is obsolete. But you know what? The other question that might have been on their mind was, well, hang on. What was the purpose of all of that? Why was that deal even put in place, the whole system? Why? And Paul gives us the answer in the book of Romans. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, this is the critical point, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. You see, the law wasn't given to establish how good we are. It was given to establish that we're not always good, that we have the sin nature, so that every mouth may be silenced. And we grappled with this in our life group. We, we still came to the question, yeah, but why did that stay in place for 1,400 years? And here's the conclusion we came to. I don't know about you, but I cannot keep the principles of that law for one day. And so after one day, I'm sinful. And then after a second day, gee, it's mounting up. And then the third and the fourth. And day after day after day after day, it mounts up. Now, that's just me. Imagine all of us, our sins cumulatively mounting up. And now the sins of the whole world mounting up day after day, year after year, for 1,400 years. I think God was making a point. You see, you and I like to say, do you know what? I might have messed up yesterday, but today I got this. Today is a different day. And we fall into this old covenant thinking where we say, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. I'm in pretty good this week. God's patient with us. He says, okay, I'll give you another day, hey? And another day, and another day, and another year, and another year. And he established before all humanity unequivocally that we cannot meet his perfect standard. We can't do it. And Paul expresses it beautifully so that every mouth may be silenced. Just comes a point where you go, okay. You know, the Jews thought the law marked them out as the people of God, and it did. It was a special revelation given to them. But you know what it also did? It pronounced a verdict upon them and upon all of humanity. And you know what that verdict was? Guilty. Can't argue with it. Can't argue with it. 
Man, I'm glad we've got a new covenant. Aren't you? And yet, I must say that that old covenant gives me some relief sometimes when I can see, ah, oh, something isn't right here. Do you know? Oh, that's right. I'm sinful. And I can't do it by myself, not one little bit. It is Christ and Christ alone. Man, that's a relief. And God always had this plan to replace that old covenant once it had done its job with a new one. And that's what the writer of Hebrews talks about. Paul actually also says, he describes the purpose this way in the book of Galatians, the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. Not by the law, but by faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. And the, the word guardian in there, some other translations describe it or translate it as tutor or schoolmaster. And the sense there is that it's like we were little kids and we needed a guardian or a tutor, somebody who looks after us and there's a sense of leading, right? Some translations say the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. It establishes unequivocally what our standing is before God, and therefore I'm not going to rely on myself anymore. I need Christ. That's where I'm going to go. And so the, the writer of Hebrews explains this covenant that was, that was prophesied, and he quotes from the, the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. Let's pick this up. He said, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant of the law, no place would have been sought for another, but God found fault with the people and said, Here's his plan. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. How good is that? This is a new covenant. And what makes it better, the writer of Hebrews sums it up. He says, Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, and I want to emphasize, to that degree, it sounds like a qualifier, but he's actually saying, the ministry is so much bigger, and in the same sense, to the same degree, Christ is the mediator of a covenant that is so much better, which has been established on better promises. What promises? can't help but think of all your promises are yes and amen in that moment what promises there are four and these are all out of that passage we've just read a promise to put the law in our minds and in our hearts a promise to be reestablished in our relationship with God he said I will be their God and they will be my people a promise to forgive our sins and remember them no more and a promise to know God personally. We will not need anybody else to tell us about God because we will know him personally and individually. We will not need another human being to stand in our place in our relationship with God because we can have a direct relationship with God through Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man. What a solution! 
Now, all of those things are interconnected. Let's unpack them a bit. At the heart of the new covenant, as I said, there's this profoundly intimate personal relationship. How do I know that? Because it says in here, they will know me. They will know me. Yeah, Aaron couldn't get that close. But you have immediate access to the throne room of God because of Jesus Christ. And this relationship transforms us. It changes us. In that moment when we surrender our lives, we say, you're completely right, God. I'm a sinner. Would you take my sin? Would you lead me? Would you be the Lord of my life? In that moment, he says, yes, I will. And he transforms you. And he changes our very nature. The scripture says, I will write my laws on their hearts and in their minds. And so the righteous requirements of the law are internalized. But this is more than awareness because God changes our very nature. He gives us a newfound capacity to obey and a desire to obey. And I loved Lou's testimony this morning when she said, what changed after I became a follower of Jesus Christ? It was wonderfully understated. I became more nice. (laughs) But then the little bit after that, which I loved, Lou, when you said, uh, I, I, I want to help other people. I don't say I'm too busy. There's a change in nature, a change in heart. Now, on our best days, we have those impulses, but we're talking about something that radical that God changes in us when we become his followers. And while we still wrestle with sin, because we have part of the old nature that we're still carrying along, something fundamental has changed in us so that Paul tells us again in Romans, sin shall no longer be your master. You're no longer under its slavery. You have a new capacity and a new life through the Holy Spirit who is in you. You have resurrection power to do what is right. Isn't that great? Isn't that an encouragement? Wow. Who knows 2 Corinthians 5.17? I'm going to give you a chance here. I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to ask you to complete the sentence. If anyone is in Christ, he is a... Come on. (laughs) The old has... The new has... Okay, let's try that again. If anyone is is in Christ, he is a... The old has... The new has come. And because we have this new life in Christ, we've been freed to live a different kind of life. And so the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 9, verse 14. He has spoken again of the priests who had to offer these bulls and these calves as a sacrifice. And he said, if that system could make a person outwardly clean, symbolically clean, ceremonially clean, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Isn't that cool? So that we may serve the living God. That is what we have been freed for. And we have this new desire to do it. And I don't want you to lose the connection with the original system just in terms of the picture there. It's saying just in just the same way that the priests would take this blood of animals and be, be ceremonially cleansed 
to serve before God in the temple. So the blood of Christ actually cleanses us to serve God through our lives. Isn't that cool? So we become ministers of God in our lives. We become a priesthood, actually, the Bible says, with a great high priest, Christ himself. And finally, we come to chapter 9, verse 15, and we read again, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Promises are a big thing today, aren't they? Big theme this morning. What great promises God has given us. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. You see that? That verse speaks of a call. Do you see that? That those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And the call again to us is to choose life. And the question I want to put to you today is, have you chosen Christ? Have you heard his call on your life this morning? And are you ready to agree with him? Are you ready to agree the verdict is guilty and it is inescapable, it is as plain as the nose on my face? We are all guilty. Man, that costs nothing to admit. And will you receive him today as your Lord? Will you receive him as your Lord? In the book of Isaiah, there's this beautiful passage where God says, Come now, let us reason together. The facts are clear. Though your sins are like scarlet, very obvious, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. It's like God takes that label on your life, that guilty plaque, and just expunges it, throws it away. What does the promise say in the new covenant? I will remember their sins no more. You'll be forgiven. And you can have a personal relationship with God today through Jesus Christ who loves you and gave his life for you. And today, right now, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that call if you haven't done that before. Can I just invite us all to bow our heads? If that's you, if you just want to agree with God and accept the very obvious and surrender to him, he will give you that new life right now. It is right there for you. And if that's, that's you and you want that, all you have to do is surrender your life to God. And so if that's you, I just invite you to pray these words after me. And you can do that out loud if you want, or you can just do that inwardly in your heart. But we're going to speak to God together. Here we go. Lord Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner. I agree with the law. Please forgive me. I believe that you died for me as a ransom for my sin. And that you rose again to give me new life. I turn away from living for myself. 
Today I choose to make you the Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. I choose to serve you. Now and forever. Amen.